one of the really cool things about trail and ultra running in particular is people go so far into the unknown. And I think that as an element of humanity, like doing something where there's the legitimate chance that you're going to utterly fail and get taken off by a helicopter, right? <laughs> That's going to happen tomorrow. The, the, the fact that there's a sport that people can participate in that has these neat elements to it. I think is I think it's good for everybody, right? It's obviously good for me because I'm you know in the sport. I'm in it. I'm in it professionally, and I'm, I earn a living doing it. But I just think it's good for society to have the, those things like that that can really test you. So I just hope that the sport continues to to, to maintain its edge, attract new people, be viable, and be fun to come out and do these types of events. That's Jason Coop. And this is episode 77 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, Morning Shakeout listeners? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and I'm excited to share a recent conversation that I had with a coaching colleague of mine, Jason Coop. Coop is one of the most highly respected and successful coaches in ultra running. He's the head ultra running coach for Carmichael Training Systems, a company he's been working for since 2001. Coop ran collegiately at Texas A&M, and he's coached athletes of all ages and ability levels over the course of his career, including some notable ones such as Western States champion Casey Licktig, Dylan Bowman, Dakota Jones, Stephanie Howe, and many others. We caught up a couple weeks ago in Chamonix, France, where we were both supporting our athletes during the UTMB Festival of Races, and a few days before, he was about to set off on the Tour de Jantz, a 330k trail race through Italy's Iosta Valley. We got into a lot of coaching nerdery in this one, including the path Koopas traveled to get where he is today, the importance of education, experience, and observation, how mentors and colleagues have made him a better coach, balancing volume and intensity in training, how he responds to criticisms of his employer and why he doesn't just start his own coaching company, the growth of the competitive side of ultra running, and much more. Lots of good stuff in here, so let's get right into it with Jason Coop. We're in Chamonix, France. Jason Coop, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So first thing I'd like to get into with you is your new second job. I mean, your primary job is head ultra running coach of CTS, but recently you've been putting in like 30, 40 hour weeks on the trail. I'd love to learn a little bit more about why. That's <laughs> funny. You consider a job. Like I had, a, I had a couple of weeks that were close to 40 hour work weeks, but it's definitely not, it's definitely not a job. I don't, I don't view it as such. Um, I've been spending a lot of time uh, training for the Tour de, Tour de Géants this year, which is in uh, September in the Alsta Valley of Italy. And is that going to be the longest race that you've ever competed in? Oh, by far. It's easily, from a duration standpoint, it's easily two and a half times longer than anything that I've ever done. And that's like Hard Rock, Badwater, those kind of races are, you know, those aren't walks in the park. But, you know, those are going to look like, kindergarten recess compared to compared to the Tour de Giants for sure. And in your preparation for it, when you're putting in all these hours on the trails, it's a lot of hiking because Tour de Giants is going to be a lot of hiking. Is there any sense of panic when you're out there putting in time? Like maybe I should get in like an extra hour here and try and simulate what it's going to be like later in the race? Or do you just have the plan, stick to it 
and feel confident that's going to get you where you want to go? No, I I mean, I I do a pretty good job of like not getting greedy with training because I realize it's not a job for me, right? I mean, I'm not a professional runner by any, any stretch of the imagination. And so the pressure for me to squeeze out, you know, 1% or 5% or even 10% with training is just not there. Um, And so I, I haven't, I haven't had any of those moments of panic, like during training. It's, it's only been when I've been thinking about it after the fact, like when you go through and say, okay, you know, my wife is going to be my crew. I'm going to see her anywhere between every eight and 20 hours. Right. It's only during those times where I'm thinking about like the logistics of it, where I just kind of go, holy crap, this is, you know, this this is a big, this is a really big deal. It's a really big route. From a training standpoint, putting in this amount of time, I'm guessing it's the most time you've ever put in from a training standpoint heading into a race, given the magnitude of it all. Has it been challenging to fit all of that in around your day job and just having a life outside of all of that? Uh, not once again, not really, because I've never I've never tried to like shoehorn things into the like the nooks and crannies of my day like. You know, I, I, as you know, right, we see each other at races all summer. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly busy from April until September, you know, going to events, doing camps, doing private camps and, you know, running around helping my athletes. And so I've, I've kind of come around to the strategy where I'm a very opportunistic athlete. And so when I do have like holes and, areas of opportunities where I can put in a lot of time, I, I, I go and do it and I feel like I can, I can do a good job training and I can absorb that training when I do it. But like I said, I'm under no illusions that I'm a professional athlete. And so when I don't have the time, I just let it go. You know, I mean, like today, you know, it's the day before uh, UTM, UTMB and CCC, I met with athletes all day, you know, and I'm not going to get in a run and that's totally you know, that's totally fine because I don't have the opportunity to do so. So anyway, I I really, even though it kind of like looks like a lot on paper, I really haven't found it that kind of that challenging to, 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 to put it all in simply because I've kind of taken that attitude of just taking advantage of the opportunities. Have you had to make any adjustments from a nutrition or recovery standpoint, upping your training volume like that? You know, interestingly, I recover a lot better because it's intentionally been such low intensity, right? you know? And so I can, you know, I can go out and I have no pressure. If there's a climb, I just hike it. Even when I run it every other day in training, every other day that I've lived in Colorado Springs throughout the nearly 20 years that I've lived there, I, I hiked almost everything from maybe April on until now. And all of which I would have run beforehand. And even on the descents, just as easy as possible no hard descending. So, so I just feel that the, it's just been easier, like physically to, to, to manage as well, just because the intensity is so low. Putting your coaching hat on for a second, when you look at your own preparation for this as an athlete, what takeaways have you gotten from this experience that you'll apply to your coaching practice moving forward? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, the, the first thing is, is a lot of it's just stuff that I already know. It's just reemphasized and that's the intensity matters. And you, you really, you know, we, we say this a lot as coaches that athletes typically they screw when they screw their intensity up, they screw it up on their endurance days and they just go too hard. 
And there's very little penalty for going easier or slightly easier on those endurance days with the uh, kind of with a, with a positive compromise coming that you're just not as trashed for your harder days and you can recover a lot easier. Um, so that's the primary one. And the other one that actually really struck me, and this is just, uh, this goes back to your volume point earlier, is that even when you're super busy, if you're smart about it and you make the commitment towards it, you can put the time in. So, you know, there, there shouldn't be outside of, you know, rare exceptions, excuses where athletes just can't put in six, eight, 10, 12 hours a week. Cause once again, I have a, a full-time and more than a full-time job at points. And I can somehow, I, I can somehow put it in being opportunistic and at times making sacrifices, you know, I get up at four or three in the morning and get my stuff done and then have a, you know, a full day of work. It, and just sometimes it takes that. So that was the real kind of re-emphasis lesson is that people have the time to put it in. They just have to make the time for it. Reminds me of something Katie Arnold, who won Leadville in 2018, told me a couple weeks ago. She just started thinking of everything as training. If she had to go to her <laughs> kids' lacrosse game, maybe she would run there or run back or while you know, while practice is going on, you know, she's walking laps and she's like, it just all counted as training. And at some point during the race, I'd be able to draw on those experiences or those activities in some way. And I thought that was a really unique perspective, but to your point about making the time, despite how busy your life is, most people can find a way to do it. Yeah. I did a lot of airport runs. So the Carl Springs airport from my house is 12 and a half miles and I can jerry rig it to get 20 miles in, I can jerry-rig it to get in 15. I can go directly there and do 12. I did a lot of to and from airport runs. Between and trips? I, yeah, between yeah between trips. And it ended up, you know, I could put in a little bit of extra volume. Plus, I just like it. I mean, there's just, I don't know what there is about showing up to the, you know, <laughs> to the entryway of an airport and you're running shorts and your shirt and having, you know, TSA kind of look at you weird and whatnot. And, and finally, they got used to it after about the fourth or fifth time that I did it, uh, that I did it this summer. But I, anyway, I just found it entertaining. It becomes kind of the new normal in some ways. Yeah. I, I learned, I actually learned that from, uh, Dean Carnassus. He used to do that a lot when he'd fly out of San Francisco and he, he kind of turned me on to it. And it, I just finally wrapped my head around the fact, okay, I'm going to do this and figure it, it out. Yeah. Figure it out. And so I've done the same thing, like leaving the San Francisco airport or running to the San Francisco airport, which I fly in and out of that a lot during the summer for races. And like I said, it's just been fun trying to piece it together. I did it at Baltimore this year as well, which is, you know, not the safest area <laughs> in the world to run through, but anyway, I just, I, yeah, different challenge. I, I, I have fun with it. You mentioned a little while ago, it's Thursday before CCC UTMB just came in from presumably watching one of your athletes finish a little while ago. What does this week look like for you in Chamonix? I know it's unique here, given that it's sort of a festival of races and there's something going on every day, but you go to a lot of your athletes' competitions, love to learn what it looks like for you in the days leading up to it and then on race day itself. Yeah, I mean, the coaching hat's firmly on. You know, I mean, we had three athletes and we, meaning our whole coaching group, had three athletes in the race yesterday and I had, and I had one athlete myself. And so I followed that race in from Cormier all the way in, got here at, you know, two, three in the morning. My athlete finished it. What time did he finish? He finished it like nine in the morning. And then I went straight to an athlete meeting at 10, straight to an athlete meeting at noon. And now I'm sitting here talking with you. So it, it's, 
it's, it's pretty helter skelter with all the races stacked up and how many athletes we have, um, how many athletes we have in the race. And I always just try to play a touch point game, you know? And so I look at the map and I look at the driving distances and I look at, you know, where the athletes are going to be at certain points. And I just figure out how many, you know, how many places can I be during the the course of the event? And the fact that tomorrow, right, we're going to have two events kind of going on at once. We're going to have the CCC going on earlier in the morning and then UTMB starting out later at night, it just adds a little bit of It's almost more exhausting from a coaching standpoint. I don't know. I mean, we always say, oh, it's harder to be in crew or harder to be in. It's not. It's harder right. running. Like, let's not let's not joke around. It, it, is, it is hard driving around and, you know, navigating some of the roads at night when you're tired and things like that. But r- running is still harder, <laughs> period. There's no question about that. You go to a lot of your athletes' races. I've seen you, God, this is at least the third time this year, if not fourth at an event that we've had athletes going to. It's important for me to do as a coach. I've seen the difference that it can make when I'm there on race day. When did you make it a priority to be at as many of your athletes' races as you could? Um, well, I mean, as you know, I, ha- I used to have this role at, at CTS where I was the vice president of operations. And um, as part, as part of that role, I basically had to monetize everything, right. I'd monetize our coaches, I'd monetize our camps, I'd monetize the business as a whole, our partnerships, like the whole, the whole thing. And part, part of that process is I would try to monetize what races I went to. And I came up with this ratio that if I had four athletes at a race, I would, I would, I would put it in the budget, put it in our, in our corporate budget annually to go out to those races because I felt that the face time was there and we could, you know, build the brand, build the business, you know, get new, you know, coached athletes and things like that. Um, but what I learned through maybe the first, I don't know, maybe two or three years of, of, of doing that is that there's a, there's a value in going to those races that goes way beyond what you can put together an ROI for. And that extends into the coach-athlete relationship. It definitely makes that stronger since I'm primarily a a remote-based endurance coach and I very rarely see my athletes outside of of events. But also what I found is having a consistent presence at them means a whole lot within the community. Because like you said, you know, you've seen me at, you know, X, Y, or Z. And when you're consistently, and when you're consistently there, that's meaningful to people. In in a day and age where a lot of our, uh, a lot of our relationships are are, view, are virtual, right? Whether it's social media or you know text text based or whatever, that in person interaction, whether it's with an athlete or just with a race director, or sometimes the volunteers, you can't put a price the, tag on. Yeah, it. you can't you can't put a price tag on that. And so now. I actually take that organizational process and I kind of flipped it on its head. So instead of saying, okay, my athletes draw their calendars out, where are the groups of four and that's where I'm going to go. I look at, I put all of my athletes races on a calendar at the very beginning of the year as, as much as I can. And I try to figure out how many of them I can actually go to at once. And sometimes that ends up being three out of four weekends of the month. And then at the tail end of it, I've got to figure out if I, if I can afford it all. Cause it is an out of pocket cost to, to, to do that. But the point of it is, is I'm trying to maximize my time out there first and foremost, as opposed to monetizing it first and foremost. 
And so that's the real reason I do it is I've just found such value that goes beyond the things that you can, that you can really calculate or put into a spreadsheet. Yeah. I found that myself and it just strengthens the bonds because most of my athlete relationships as well are remote based. And even the athletes that I see on a weekly basis, I mean, that's valuable in itself too. When you're at the race, it shows that next level sort of, of commitment to the athlete and, I think over time it only it only strengthens that relationship in the long term because you know your coach is literally going to be there for you when yeah. you need it the most and you know in this day and age where it is we can get into this a little bit later easy to become a quote unquote coach all you have to do is set up a website and you could do it yeah. by email or send someone plans however you want um, and there are people who do it as a complete money grab being able to you know, show your athletes like, look, I just don't want X amount of dollars from you every month. I want to be there for you to celebrate your success and also to pick you up if you end up falling down. Yeah. And you know what also, what I also just thought of is why I keep doing is I always learn something and something that's usually extremely valuable that I can, I I learned stuff yesterday out on uh, the TDS that I'm going to apply tomorrow during CCC and UTMB as a coach. And when you repeat that process, every kind of iteration of it, you get better and better and better. And especially, I mean, it's everything from like just course knowledge, right? Just getting out and seeing the aid stations and running on the course a little bit to seeing how people interact with each other, to see how other crews interact with each other and how, you know, how people do it really well and how people don't do it really well. Like that's been another big thing of consistently going out to these is just the, what I can take back and apply to my athletes, either in a training application or a race application, that's, that's, that's been immensely valuable. How important is that skill of observation as uh, a coach? You have to do it. You have to do it consciously. So you'll notice yesterday, I probably did not do a very good job of this. So, you know, bad coaching on my part, but I very rarely send out any tweet, Instagram message, Facebook message, whatever, while I'm doing that, because I have to be conscientious, conscientiously observing of what, what is actually going on. You have to be present to, you have to be present to like draw that stuff out. I might've sent like three or four, you know, uh, uh, tweets out yesterday, which probably is the most that I've ever, that I've ever done for whatever reason. Normally like in Western States, I don't think I sent, I don't think I sent one piece of social media out the entire time. And that's just because, it, A, I'm driving around like a freaking madman. But the other thing is, is just being kind of completely present when you're actually there. Well, and as a coach in those moments, it doesn't do anything to make you a better coach. No. And it's not doing anything to help no. your athletes either. No. I mean, you don't see an NBA coach on the sideline sending out an Instagram post of, you know, what he was discussing at halftime. Like, you don't see that kind of stuff in other sports. For whatever reason, though, you see it in running. Like, you see a lot of, of people out there that should be helping their athletes that are you know, busy on Instagram for whatever reason. And, you know, there's time for that. I agree. I get it. There's time, there's downtime in, in races, but I still take the approach of you got to rank order things and your athletes should be at the top of that rank order. And then everything else should be later, even your own sleep and, you know, sometimes, comfort. Yeah, sometimes that's gotta, that's gotta, you know, come last. Yeah. Uh, if, you know, if it comes at the expense of helping your athlete and that's why you're there. 
Yeah, for sure. And certainly going to happen sure. this weekend for both of us. Yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah, it, we'll already drive has, it already has for you because you've had athletes competing. Fortunately for me, I don't really have to worry about that till Friday night when the race starts. Yeah, we'll but, drive through the tunnel at midnight or yeah. 1 a.m. or whatever it is. and Catch a know. fusies and Cormier yeah. while we're waiting in between. And it'll be awesome. Yeah, it's part of, I mean, it's part of the experience of not just this event, but I think ultra running in general. I don't have that problem with my marathon or something. <laughs> <laughs> you can have a reasonable dinner later and yeah. Yeah, life goes, life goes on after it. I'd love to go backward a little bit to your origins as a runner. Sure. What was your introduction to the sport? Um, so I grew a lot in sixth grade. I think I grew like six inches, like in one grade. So really, and I still have like the stretch marks to, to, to prove it. Um, and so I started playing basketball. That's the reason for that childhood story. And through basketball, I learned I was, I was a pretty decent runner because of the conditioning drills. And so through that, through being a, you know, decent runner or the best runner on my basketball team, I joined the track team and then I really enjoyed track. And so I ran, uh, youth track and field, you know, all of my teens and through high school, ran, ran in high school, I ran in college at Texas A&M, track, indoor, outdoor. And you grew uh, up in Texas. I grew up in Texas. Yeah. I grew up in Dallas. And, uh, once I graduated from, uh, once I graduated from Texas A&M, I took an internship and started kind of formally coaching when I was, uh, when I was, what I would say I was half babysitting, half coaching a youth track and field team. Um, and then it just kind of spiraled from there. You know, I started doing, uh, I started doing kind of all different types of endurance events. So mountain biking events, cycling events, running events, got into trail running, trail running led to, you know, the Pikes Peak Ascent, the Pikes Peak, uh, marathon, which is in my backyard. And then that led to ultra running. Just kept snowballing. Yeah, exactly. And that led to Tour de Jeans. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, but going back to before you even got into coaching as a runner coming from basketball, which is how I got into the sport as well. Aside from conditioning, what was the initial appeal of running for you or the moment when you first realized that, Hey, I actually think I kind of like this. Well, I mean, initially it was just cause I was good at it. Right. And like any kid, you know, they gravitate towards things that they're, uh, think that, that, that they're good at. But as I got into my late teens and my early twenties, that that was still a big component of it. I was I was I was good. I wasn't great, right? I mean, but I, I could be on a Division One team and play a part of the team and stuff like that. But i I really got to i I really got to just understand how it was part of my formation as a man. So how it brought me aspects of discipline and organization and toughness and stick to and dealing with adversity and on a team learning how to manage different, you know, personalities and, you know, things like that. I, I enjoyed all of those things. And this is probably why I gravitated into coaching as well. I enjoyed all of those things around running as well because they were influential. They were very influential on who I was becoming. And for, for whatever reason, when I was you know, 18, 19 years old, I started, I started to realize that component of it. And I, I think that that was critical in the, in this aspect that I'm a lifelong runner, right? I mean, you, we, we've seen this a lot with our, with our collegiate teammates where some of them go on and they're lifelong runners and other ones you see 10, 15 years later and they're completely different people. And I attribute a lot of that to, for whatever reason, me just figuring out all of these things that, orbit around running that are not central to the competition itself that were very influential in me. Who was the first coach that had a meaningful impact on 
you as an athlete and a person? Uh, it was Tom Clark. Um, and he actually gave me my first coaching job. He was the youth track and field coach um, for the Texas Stars Track Club Incorporated. It was a really small track club in Texas. You know, they're just dotted around everywhere. And he was the type of guy that would quite literally and figuratively give you the shirt off his back and the shoes off of his feet so you could run on a track beat. And I, and I saw him do it. And um, so I ran for him as a teenager. And then when he needed help and I was of age to actually work and apparently mature enough to, to have some sort of responsibility, he would put me in charge of like the little kids, right? And we'd do hurdling drills and, you know, I'd show him how to set up in the blocks and, you know, kind of things like that. But it wasn't, he was a big influence on me, not, not so much in like the in the, in, in the technical coaching area or anything like that, but just in giving me responsibility because quite literally it's, you know, you can imagine a youth track and field team. There's 40 kids out on the track it's and one coach, total, total chaos. He'd just say, Coop, go handle the sprinters today. And I wouldn't see him for an hour and a half until all the parents came back. And that, you know, that, that experience, although, you know, I, pr I probably made a zillion mistakes every single practice. Nobody really cared because all the kids were, you know, at the end of the day tired and they, we all, and all accounted for, <laughs> which was the goal. Uh, but just the fact that he instilled that trust in me and really didn't have to like look over my shoulder or he couldn't look over my shoulder. That was really meaningful that I could like just go and figure those things out and kind of carve my own, my own path for whatever I needed to do. And was it then in your late teens that you knew coaching was something that you wanted to pursue yourself over the long term or had, had that not clicked yet? No, that, that clicked pretty immediately. Cause when I was 18, I actually took, uh, the USA cycling or USA track and field, uh, certification exams. I was, I was really young. I mean, I basically waited my birthday and then jumped into it cause they had a minimum age requirement. And so I knew I really liked it, you know, just, just from the onset, like I would always be at the practices. I kind of craved doing it just, just like today where I like being at the races. I like being at the meets, mm -hmm. you know, seeing all the, uh, seeing all the kids compete We drive all over the state to, you know, and I'd take kids, you know, with their parents' permission to track meet X, Y, X, Y, or Z. And, and so it was kind of from very early on that I, that I decided that I really wanted to do it. And every summer I'd go back. And I'd work for pennies on the dollar, quite literally, helping the kids out for whatever I could, you know, with every with, with everything else going on. And and I really stuck to that. I really stuck through that all the way until I started kind of more formally coaching, you know, as a as as a practice and as a business. Did you know you always wanted to coach? running because for a while, I mean, that's what you're known as now is ultra running coach. But as you alluded to earlier, for a while, you were coaching some cyclists, you coached some triathletes, like you've coached some MMA athletes, um, for different things, which we can get into here in a bit. Did you know you just wanted to, to coach and help people in that way, regardless of what the pursuit was going to be? Or did you want to stay along that path as a runner? Because that was your background as an athlete and what you were most familiar with. I honestly didn't care. I mean, when, to put it in context, so when I first started remote-based endurance coaching, which is what our business is called, I can't believe that's a term now, it, it was right around 2000, 2001. And th that wasn't a thing before then. I mean, before that, the, the, 
the idea of a coach was somebody's basketball coach with the clipboard and the nylon shorts. They're at practice. And yeah, they're at practice. Or every if they're a track time. coach, they're at the track. They've yeah. got their stopwatch. Exactly. And so this 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 concept in 2000, 2001 of being somewhere else aside from where your athletes are and being able to guide them was was kind of completely new. So to be honest with you. I didn't have the choice of, I just want to coach runners because the market wasn't that big. We were still convincing the marketplace that this was something that was viable. viable right. And so I, t- we, t- we took, I took everybody. I learned how to coach cyclists and I would say I was quite a proficient cycling coach. I learned how to coach triathletes and I would say I was quite a proficient triathlon coach and any, anybody else that would kind of come our way because we couldn't be picky about who we worked with because the, the, the market was so small and, and, and the business was so uh, juvenile at the time. And so I've always considered that a really, uh, a really fortunate part of my career tra- trajectory because I learned to look at these different sports that I had no background in through a very unfiltered lens. And it made me look at running a whole lot differently. Um, I, I think that's super important too, because I think as runners, I was having this conversation earlier with Chris McDougal, we're very set in our ways yep. and this is just the way, why do you, why do you do it this way? Cause well, this is just the way that you do it. It's yep. the way it's always been done. And a lot of runners don't have that experience in other sports, whether it's other endurance sports or ball sports to be able to look at something through that different lens and apply it in a way that can lead to meaningful progress. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, it's like a superpower. Well, o- over the course of years, I've gotten a, a, a fair amount of criticism for that, cycling and uh, triathlon influence. And I always just kind of laugh at that criticism because it completely changed the, like a lot of the ways that I thought about run training, or at least gave me the perspective that we don't have to be so stuck in our ways and it doesn't have to be the way that you did it. Because when I first started coaching, I did the same thing everybody else did when they first started coaching. I regurgitated my own stuff. I regurgitated everything that I did this in college. I, I regurgitated, you know, everything in Jack Daniel's book, which is great, by the way, right? I regurgitated everything there, everything in the lore of running, everything in better training for distance runners and, and just ad nauseum. And I never, because I never was forced to look at the sport from somebody who didn't know it because I knew it so intimately well, I just took all of that stuff at face value. And some of that has stood the test of time, but a lot of that hasn't. We look back at some of that stuff 10 or 15, 10 or 15 years. What and, were we thinking? Yeah, and we're like, wow, that was really dumb. Like we, we really missed the mark on, on, on X, Y, or Z. And so just going back to my earlier point, I've always considered that part of my coaching career where I was working with these sports, which I had no business really working in. Like I couldn't get away with that today. Nobody could get away with that today, but we could at the time because once again, the market was, ever, so, small. The market was so small and, and, and so juvenile. Um, I look at that as, as a key piece of, uh, of influence that I've had simply because of the scope that it's given me and the way that it's taught me to, to think about things. How have you thought about coaching from an educational standpoint? Let's start with yourself. You started coaching, as you just described, in your late teens, kind of right out of high school. Did you have an inkling at that point when you went to Texas A&M that, hey, I should study something that is related to exercise science because I'll be able to more directly apply that to my coaching? Or did you have other interests at the time academically and thought, well, from a coaching and educational standpoint, I'll, I'll learn what I need to know? I honestly was trying to satiate both. So I have a biochemistry and genetics degree. 
Um, and I, I thought initially I, I was going to be a geneticist. I was incredibly fascinated with that area because it was right around the time of when the Human Genome Project was going on. And that captured, you know, a lot of people's attention and the college that I went to was heavily involved in that. And so that influence kind of led me down that path. But there's a lot of biochemistry crossover, obviously, with exercise physiology. And I was able to take, I took all the hard electives, right? Biomechanics, exercise phys, exercise science, you know, neural science, like all the, all, the, all that type of stuff. And so it, it definitely was a kind of a dual influence where, I didn't know that I would need all that stuff later on the li- down the line, but it's 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 become incredibly valuable. I, I've al- I always I always liken it to I learned exercise physiology from the atomic level, which is the opposite way that most people learn exercise physiology. Most people learn exercise physiology starting at the level of the organism, mm-hmm. and then they go down to the level of the cardiovascular system and muscular system and they things like down. that. Yeah, right. I took the other approach. Right. Here's what here's how atoms function. Right. Here's how molecules function. And here's how they get built up, yeah. you know, to the level of the human. And from a continuing education standpoint now, I mean, you're well out of college at this point, not to date your yeah, age come on at now. all. But what do you do personally and then also within the team of coaches that you manage and mentor to stay on top of things and continue to learn and challenge yourself uh, so that you can apply those learnings to your athletes training and preparation? Yeah. So personally, I've really tried to do two things. Uh, it's it's, since I'm at this stage of my coaching career, I mean, I've been doing it for almost 20 years now. Um, the first one is trying to carve out a time every week where I can get better at something. And normally that's Wednesdays between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. Not this week, <laughs> but most typical week. week. Typical week when I'm at home between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. That's my time to like carve out and like classroom try, time. Yeah, classroom time where I just really try to focus on something and I grab something from somewhere, Twitter, podcast, or, or something like that. And and the second thing, um, and this isn't strictly from a continuing education standpoint because there's a lot of there's a big element of this where I think it serves my athletes better is I've very conscientiously tried to build out a professional network of domain experts that I can lean on for things that I have questions on or I want to know more about. And that part of it in particular, um, has, it, it just comes with experience, right? I mean, you just have to be in the game for so long to, be able to reach out to somebody like a Stacy Sims. I, I just had some dialogue with her, so she's at the top of my mind right now. And I can say, hey, what do you what do you think about this? Or Marty Hoffman, who mm-hmm. is a former medical director of Western States. I just sent him a you know something that happened with with one of my athletes just to get his opinion on it. That piece in particular, I've had to lean on more and more because there's always going to be somebody out there that knows something that knows more than you do in a particular area. They're always, 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 always. And in order to, in order to get that nuance that sometimes you really need as a coach, you can't do all the research yourself. So you have to lean on those experts and then learn as much as you can from them. You can't learn a hundred percent of what they know. It's not possible, but you try to learn as much as you can from those uh, people through that dialogue. So that professional network piece in, in particular has been really, really valuable for me over the last, I'd say, maybe seven or 10 years. You guys sort of have a bit of a built-in network within the CTS training group because you've got, I don't know how many coaches on your roster, all of whom have different 
academic backgrounds, experience levels, and because you work together, can lean on one another to answer one another's questions. And I think that's huge. I mean, myself, as I work for myself, I don't have any other coaches in my company or whatever you want to call it, but I have a lot of coaches and colleagues that I can call up and, and even some of my athletes who have expertise in certain areas that I can call up with those, those questions too. And it's, and it's huge because you realize like, I certainly don't know it all or even come close to it, but the more that I can, you know, inform myself, the better coach that I'm going to be. Yeah. So do your second, the second part of that question. So within our coaching group, the, the structure that we, the continuing education structure that we have is rooted in this once a week commitment that we all make. And I can't force everybody to do it, right? Independent contractors, you can't force them to you know do anything. But we all make a commitment to sit down Tuesdays from 1.30 Mountain Time to 3 Mountain Time and talk about something. And sometimes that's incredibly technical. Sometimes we bring in a guest speaker for it. Sometimes it's looking at an athlete's schedule. Sometimes it's something that, that's very topical, something that just came up at a race or came up in the, you know, the popular media or whatever we want to bat around. And outside of the, what I would call the initial education process for our new coaches, which is very structured, right? We get people all on the same page reading from the same book. That piece of it is very ad hoc. So we sit down, we map out four to six weeks in a row, and about 50% of that goes to plan. The other 50% doesn't. But the consistency and the commitment of doing it every single week, come rain or shine, just last Tuesday, I was the one in charge of the presentation, 9 p.m. Italy time, right? I still developed it, gave it. What was it on? Oh, it was on man, man, <laughs> managing your managing your time during races and events and things like that, which once <laughs> oh, again, fitting. quite, quite topical. Right? right. Right. So I literally just put together, this is kind of how I did it. But anyway, my point with that is, is, is the commitment of doing it every week, just like my 8am to 10am Wednesday, this is my continuing ed time. That part that we do as a group provides the whole group, a whole lot of value because we have coaches in that group that are like me that, you know, have two decades worth of experience and the coach that we're about to hire you know, a month from now, we'll be in that same group. And so we all get to learn from each other in that environment. But the key with it all is just the consistency aspect that we do it every single week. Hey, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It's Aftershocks. Aftershocks is the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones are super comfortable and sit outside your ear so you can safely listen to music, tune into this podcast, or even take a phone call while safely being able to hear what's going on around you. Best part about these headphones? For my money, it's the battery life. Aftershocks will last you six hours. That's a quarter of your day. Whether it's a long run or a long commute, Aftershocks headphones will go the distance. Most importantly, Aftershocks headphones sound great. They deliver crisp and clear audio and feature wide dynamic sound range, deep bass, and dual noise-canceling mics. Morning Shakeout listeners can save 50 bucks on an Aftershocks endurance bundle, which includes everything you need for your next big run. You get bone conduction headphones to ensure safety and comfort, matching reflective sport belt to tote your phone and keys, a water bottle to stay hydrated, a shoe bag to keep your dirty shoes away from your clean clothes, and a cooling towel for lasting heat relief. To learn more and save 50 bucks on Aftershocks Endurance Bundles, visit TMS, 
www.aftershocks.com and use the code TMS when you check out. My thanks to Aftershocks for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. You are, as you described earlier, now your head ultra running coach for CTS. Previously, you were director of operations, I guess also head ultra running coach or head of coaching. I just make up titles. <laughs> whatever, whatever it may be. When did you first get involved with CTS? I know you've been with the organization for a while now. Yeah, I, I first was involved as an intern in 2000, either 2000, 2001. The dates are, is escaping me right now. Were you college age at that time? Yeah, or? I was college. I was a senior, right? I hadn't graduated yet. I needed, uh, I, I wanted to get out of Texas for a summer to run because I just had it with the heat in central Texas. You know, you just get beat down with 100 degree days after 100 degree days. And so I just happened to stumble on the on an internship. I have no idea why this company need, like looking back on it, there's no need for them to have an internship. I mean, there were like three people, right, working there. It was very, very well, as small. you described, like remote coaching at that point was in its nascency. Yeah. And so I get there and, you know, I mean, we're still using dial-up modems at this point, like literally dial-up modems. We fax and workouts yeah, to people. Yeah, we were. We were. It's fax and snail mail. I had one of my first athletes, we used snail mail. Um, not, uh, well, I am interrupting you, but fine. it reminds me of one of my favorite books of all time is a clear, cold day. And it's a buddy Edelin story, uh-huh. but he was one of the top American runners in the fifties and sixties, but he lived in the UK. So no one really knew much about him. And he corresponded with it. He was actually remotely coached by his oh, coach in the U S and they would mail like, oh gosh, it's like two weeks. No, it would, it would take weeks for it to come over and they would mail like, uh, I think it was like a month's worth of workouts oh, at a time. Uh, and I just always think of that when someone tells me to go, I was mailing workouts to my yeah, friends. Cause we, now, now you wouldn't even think of that, right? We've got it easy now. Yeah. I mean, even when I started first coaching, like the, just the compliance of the information, right. Getting the athlete to like give you a file. It, it was complicated. I mean, you had to, you know, download this and transfer this file over here and read this file in another program. And then, you know, it's just, it was a seven step process and now you just stop your watch and everything happens. But back, back to my story. So I started there in, in, in 2000, 2001 as the very cliche intern that worked in the worst conditions possible. And half my, half the time was cleaning the toilets and the other half the time was actually doing really cool stuff. And I just kept, you know, kind of working up the ladder and doing a good job and hustling and working hard and hustling and working hard and learning things and working with new sports like we talked about earlier and just really stuck with it and and, and really made it a lifelong lifelong profession, which I would have never, ever have dreamed of at the time. Be- once again, because I couldn't explain what I was doing to my mom. Right. You know, it's like, hey, mom, I graduated. I've got all this college debt. Here's what I'm doing. It was like a like a three hour conversation. Made, to made try no to sense. Made no no sense at all. No, and it kind of didn't make much sense to me either. But um, I'm still amazed at this. But point you knew in you time. had a foot in the door. Yeah, and I and I knew I, I knew that it was early enough in the development of whatever this was going to become that if I stuck with it that eventually, you know, you, you, if you have, you know, part of first mover or early mover position, and at the same time you do a really good job, you can end up, you know, at the, at the top of the field that's that, you know, once it's all said and done, I, I, I definitely had that sense, uh, kind of starting out because there just wasn't anybody doing it. Is that something you have to remind some of your younger coaches For of sure. today? 
For sure. And, and not only- Because I get that question a lot from people like, I want to do what you do. Yeah, for sure. And then sure. you explain to them how you got started and they're like, really? It took that long? Yeah, for no, for sure. I mean, and I was in that, I was in that, when I, when I was an intern, I was in that position too, because my mentors and the people who initially uh, were responsible for me as a coach, they had all been coaching for two decades with athletes at the Olympic Training Center and, you know, prof- you know professional endurance athletes and cycling and in the triathlon world. And so it's really just 2.0 of that. Like I'm kind of t- turning that around when people, we're, we're going through a hiring process right now. And so we're, I'm getting these, these questions probably as we speak in my inbox. And I do have to constantly remind some of the, some of the, some of the newer coaches that we bring on board that, yeah, it, it, it takes, a, it takes a while. It's not, and even if you do get instances success for whatever reason, and I've seen this happen and it's going to continue to happen. If you do get instant success, if you don't do a good job and do it for the right reasons, it'll go away because now the market is too mature and they push all those people out within two, three, four years. And that, and that, and that's happened. And you, you've probably seen that happen. Yeah. I've seen it happen. I get those same questions all the time. Again, I don't have coaches who want to work for me, but people who want to coach and they know that I've been doing it a while will ask a lot of those questions. And you, you know, you tell them about, yeah, this is the path that I've, I've followed to get where I am. These are the dues that I've had to pay. But the biggest thing I tell them is like, make sure you're doing this for the right reasons. Cause, cause if you're not, you're not going to have like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I have to remind myself of why I do it. Otherwise I'm not going to be doing it for the rest of my life. People want to know where to go. Like, where do I go to learn this? Give me the roadmap. And there, yeah. And there's not, and there's not one because it's not like an engineering degree, Right. right. Where you've got a more defined path or an accounting degree where you have more defined path. You definitely have to figure, you definitely have to carve it out yourself. And whenever that's the case, this carve it out yourself piece, whenever that's the case, you have to start with, as you mentioned, doing it for the right reasons. Because when you're doing it for the right reasons, you're going to make umpteen mistakes, but you're also going to correct those. When you're not doing it for the right reasons, you're going to make those mistakes and and keep going. Yep. You're going to let it fly or keep perpetuating the mistake. Agreed. So... At what point in your trajectory with um, CTS did you realize that this was viable and something that you could continue to do? And not that you, not not when you realized you had made it, but when you realized like, okay, I'm not going to have to go and like completely rewrite what my, what I want to do for a career or figure something else out. It, it took a while. Um, you did know, you do had, other stuff? While I, had, you were? I had to have a second job. I worked at Bennigan's when I first started for two years. Actually, Bennigan's, not like, you know, the fake Bennigan, like the Bennigan's. And I'd go there at 5 p.m. and I'd take the, you know, I'd take the evening shift. And I did that to, make, to literally make ends meet because, once again, it was so young. And I, I could not, even though they were paying me as a full-time employee, it was just not enough, not to, not, not, not enough to, to make ends meet. And so it took maybe four or five years for that to turn around and it was a combination of doing it for long enough and having the confidence that I'm, I'm good at what I'm doing. Right. Mm -hmm. And also the market maturing to a place where we could all take a step back and, you know, not have to duct tape and bubble gum things, (laughs) things together. And, and, you know, in a true startup sense, I could quit my job at Bennigan's, you know, and make a, make a full-time living, uh, being a coach. So, so it it took four or five years. I definitely had to pay, I had to pay a lot of dues in a lot of areas to 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 get to that point. 
when did you make the transition from coaching these multiple sports early on in your career to focusing primarily on running and maybe even ultra running, even though I'd love to dig into maybe when that switch Mm -hmm. flipped as well. Because ultra running, I think as far as being a competitive sport, it's really just started to rise in the last several years where not just the top athletes, but athletes who are getting into the sport who are age groupers are seeking out coaching. And now, you know, the ultra running coaches are in in high demand. They're popping up, Mm -hmm. you know, every week. But I know in the early 2000s, that definitely was not the case. No, not, not even close. In fact, I've told the story a couple of times. Um, in, in the, I would say the mid 2000s, I reached out to a lot of the top ultra runners at the time. People, guys and girls, winning races, incredibly successful, young, you know, in the middle of their career, in the twilight of career, you name it. I reached out to a lot of people. I got laughed at. Like, literally, I literally got laughed at a couple of times. And in the sense of coaching is stupid for this sport. And so I, I very, I very literally put the brakes on doing that from a trail and ultra running perspective for about seven or eight years. So that takes us to like 2010. Let me right? stop you right there yeah. for a second though. When you were reaching out to these athletes, were you reaching out to them because you had observed that a lot of these folks, I don't want to say we're doing it the wrong way, but you felt they could be doing something better to improve their performances? Well, so this is before Strava, so I didn't know. Right. <laughs> right. So I just, wanted, I just wanted to help. Yeah. Like that's kind of, that's always been my MO with, with athletes is, Hey, how can I help? And so I'd reach out and like I said, some of them just seem young and, you know, maybe I could hint at, or maybe I could catch a hint that they were making some mistakes or whatever, but I honestly didn't care. I just wanted, I just wanted to help them out. And I thought it would be fun. I thought it'd be neat to, to, to work within the running sport group, it's really hard to get in the door, foot in the door with marathoning, as you as you know, right? Mm-hmm. The 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 market there is really is really crowded. Um, but uh, like I said, I just wanted to help, and I quite literally got laughed at. So I I put the I literally put the brakes on that for maybe seven or eight years until about 2010, mm-hmm. and then it gradually, for I don't I don't know whatever reason started to turn over and and the 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 real turning point and this just tells you how serendipitous life is sometimes is I was I was reading an article in Colorado running magazine Colorado runner I can't remember the name of it small publication in Colorado right. about Dakota Jones and he mentions in the article I have no idea what I'm doing I need a coach and so I called Topher who both you and I know, called Topher, who is a mutual friend of ours. And I said, hey, is this kid a good kid? And I'm more than happy to help. Back to my earlier MO, you know, how can I help? And he said, Topher was a sponsor at the time, or worked for his his sponsor, Montreal at the time. And Topher said, yep, he's a good kid. You know, he probably needs some guys really young at the time, 20, I don't think he was even 21 at the time. And so I took him on board and within me working with him for two months, he beat Killian Jornet at Transgran Canaria or Transvolcania, sorry, Transvolcania. And it's I'm an eye opening performance on a number op- of levels. And I am not going to take any credit for that at all. Right. It's two months, right? There's, there's very little. And he also set the course record at Lake Sonoma within the first two weeks of me coaching him, but nobody noticed that one. Everybody noticed the, the, the beating Killian one. And 
ever since then, it was like a rocket ship. And it, that, that once again, and I, and I, I'm not going to profess to say, well, it never would have happened eventually and blah, blah, blah. But that definitely was a lot of rocket fuel in this whole ultra running uh, part of the business that we've been able, that sing, that singular one race. Now you always have to back that up. As I mentioned earlier, right? You have to have consistent performance and across a number of different levels and blah, blah, blah. But that one gave a whole lot of fuel to that whole endeavor. But it turned the tables in a sense. You're not reaching out to people saying, how can I help you? You've got people reaching out to you saying, can you help me? Yeah. And also I, I might have a, a little bit of a bias lens on this. The whole aspect of me getting laughed at earlier after that had changed. And I, once again, I have a bias lens there. But I think when I think if you ask a lot of people that have been in the sport for long enough, they'll start to they'll have a roughly the same type of inflection point of when that attitude definitely started to change. How would you describe your philosophy of coaching? Um, yeah, that's some, one of them. I'm going to ding you for that one. That's one of the most cliche. I know it's a cliche question, but it's going to lead somewhere. Have, I promise okay, you. Okay, good. I'll, I'll give a short answer. It's a set up question. Okay, good. So, I mean, I, I, I believe that, that first and foremost, you have to care that you have to care about the athlete as a person first, and then maybe not even as an athlete second, maybe as some other role second, and then athlete kind of gets rolled into that. And when you start from a position of caring, then everything else can, can, can flow from there. And the second piece of my philosophy is just everything is linked to the aerobic engine. Yeah, you, we can draw a new, okay, there's neuromuscular fatigue here and, you know, carbohydrate depletion there and blah, 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 blah. In a cardiovascular sport, the biggest engine has the best advantage. And if you skew your training to that, not sell it out, but skew your training towards that, you can hardly ever go wrong outside of very, very, very few circumstances. So th those, those two pieces, I kind of root most of the philosophy and the personal piece first and then the strategic physiological piece second. And I think that second piece of your philosophy ties into something you said at the very beginning of this conversation put it into two words, intensity matters. Yeah. And you can take that statement a number of different ways. I think off the top, someone looks at that and says, oh, does that mean I have to go hard all the time? It's like, yeah, well, no, no, you've got to go hard at the right times, uh, yeah. at the right intensity. But sometimes you got to back off on that and go longer. And then other times, you know, you've got to go easier. Getting a little deeper into the second part of that philosophy, how has that evolved for you over time as a coach? Well, I used to try to do too much. And we see this all the time with our younger coaches when we start to bring them on and mentor is they just have too much stuff on the plate. You know, they've got this workout over here and that workout over there and this cross training and yoga and strength training and go ride your bike and, you know, lift these weights and blah, blah, blah. And they don't have the physiological portion of it very organized or centralized into the things that, that actually matter. And so the bigger thing is, is I, I just keep things a whole lot simpler. It's, Let's hit this volume and let's do these two workouts. And if you get that done, great. And before it was, there's 10 things on that list. That's when did that flip for you? I don't know if it was so much. Well, I don't know when it flipped, but I can tell you the mechanism of how it flipped. And uh, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I, I was really fortunate earlier in my coaching career that I had ext extremely good and very experienced mentors. 
and they beat the crap out of me every single day. I'd come into the office and I'd have some coaching thing worked up and they would just tear it to shreds. This is dumb. That You need to think about this differently. That's not how that works and blah, 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 blah. And one of the, one of the very typical run of shows that we would have is I would show one of these extremely experienced coaches or physiologists, what I was doing with an athlete, and they'd go through every single piece, not just a day. How long is the warm up? How long is this particular interval? Every how long is the recovery intervals? How much volume of intensity? Are every single, and sometimes a day would take an hour, right, to go through it. And they just ask, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why is your recovery run 60 minutes? Why is it not 55 minutes? Why do you care about this piece of feedback? And through that constant questioning of why, when I couldn't answer that, that's when I knew I had gone awry. Even if I had, even if whatever I had that I couldn't answer was correct or it was based on even the fact that I couldn't answer it, it means I just got lucky. So through that process of having somebody who was way, way more experienced than I was, constantly questioning and berating me literally every day, literally every, every, every single day that it didn't turn the switch, but that changed my thinking to, I better be able to have a why behind every single thing that I'm doing, no matter how nuanced it is. It's almost impossible to explain how valuable that is because I feel like someone in that situation, it goes one of two ways for them. It goes the way that it went for you where you actually dig into it yourself and figure out, you know, why, like, yeah, why, yeah, why yeah, am yeah, I doing yeah, this? Yeah. Or Answer you get, question. <laughs> or you get so discouraged that you're like, you either start doubting yourself or you start resenting the person who yeah. is questioning you being like, no, 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 they're just giving me a hard time. And, and you took it as like, no, they're trying to help me become a better coach. Yeah. So an interesting anecdote to that, that you'll really like is, so through that experience, when I took on the director of coaching position, I incorporated more of that into our initial screening process. And so when we're, before we've even brought the coach on board. Interviewing them. During, during the actual interview, right? I mean, it's, a, it's almost like survivor you know, to a certain extent. But we would have parts of that why, 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 why. And not, not so much to test what they know and didn't know. That was certainly a, a very small component of it. But the bigger one was just to see how they reacted to it. Did they get defensive? Did they actually say, you know what? I don't know, but I'm going to go look that up. Right. That's the person I want to hire, right? I don't want to hire the person that gets defensive or says, ah, I just, I just made it up. I want to hire the person that says, you know what? I don't know why. I'm going to figure out why that's important or why you know it, it means something. And I think that's so important because I think a lot of young coaches feel like they have to know everything. They feel like that's part of yeah. their job. That's why someone's going to them because they know it all. And the reality is none of us know it all. We know a lot. We have varied experiences, but there's going to be something that comes up inevitably that you have to have the confidence to say, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to go consult with my colleague, Jason Coop and yeah. see what he says. Or, you know, I have someone who's a specialist in nutrition and I'm going to go find out the answer to that for you. And I think a lot of young coaches don't have that confidence when they're first getting into it. Yeah. So the, the very, the very first training session that I do with new coaches, I have this like little five minute bit that runs along those same lines where I say, 
you're not going to know everything. Certainly, you're not going to know everything when you first take an athlete, and they'll probably first take an athlete two or three months after we after we hire them. You're not going to know everything, but the customer thinks you do. The athlete thinks that you actually do know everything, and you've got to be able to navigate that. That's why we have a team of people behind you to help. To and that's not fair. That's not that's not fair to the coach, but still the athlete expects it on the other end. And I think we're a lot of um, young coaches, particularly young coaches that don't have a network behind them get caught is they think that they have to know all the answers to those and they just can't, right. they just can't. It's just not, it's just not possible. There's just too much information out there to figure it all out by themselves. And that's where maturity comes in. Um, as you mature as a coach, you can actually accept that you don't know it all and it's okay to go ask for help. But I think that's a really interesting and valuable exercise that you take with new coaches who are coming on board. That's a pretty, it's a, it's an eye opener. Like I said, I yeah. mean, we, we do reveals a lot. I, well, I would say we do, a, we do just as good a job as anybody else, just kind of screening people for the right stuff. But still, when you, when you kind of get them in and they find, and they see, okay, this is how it's really going to be. It's a totally different kettle of fish. Since we're here, what advice would you give for a young coach who is looking to get into the profession and make a career out of it? Well, to start doing it, you know, um, I think a a lot of people, they try to over-engineer what they quote unquote need to start, right? Do I need this certification? Do I need this educational profile? Do I need a website? Like whatever, like just start doing it. Go ask somebody and coach them for free. And, and figure it out, absorb all of the, like right now we have a tremendous amount of information that's out there for free. There's this podcast, right? Twitter. I mean, my gosh, right now, uh, here's, here's a good story. So we, we used to have our interns as one of their primary job was just to pull articles. We'd get, you know, the big in the mail, right? The physical journals every single month and our senior coaches, we'd thumb through them and we'd mark the ones that we wanted to actually discuss. We'd give them to our interns. They'd go pull them, photocopy them. You know, if they had to pull them electronically from somewhere else, they'd pull them electronically from somewhere else. But they were basically the aggregators. Now I just use Twitter. I just follow the right physiologists on Twitter and I get not 100% there, but maybe like 80%, 80% there. But um, back to your original question, it's just to start, like just start doing stuff and figure, figure your way out and hack it together. You're going to have to carve your own path because there's no, you know, there's no pre-planned trajectory that any, any of us have ever taken. So just get your freaking hands dirty and figure it out. And I think that applies to almost any thing, whether it's a profession or a pursuit that you want to have, you have all the people, they want to check all the boxes or have all the right pieces in place before they start. And it's like, whether it's coaching or writing or whatever it is, it's like, if you want to be a coach, start coaching. You want to be a writer, start writing. Uh, and so many people are like, well, do I have the, you know, am I using the right software? Yeah, uh, yeah, do yeah, I have yeah. the right, right, as you said, do right. I have the right certification? Right. It's like, it's like those things are superficial um, to like, to your point. And that's, I think that's where experience and having mentors is valuable because you're like, look, when I started this, I was faxing people workouts. I was mailing them stuff, you know, in the mail. It didn't matter what equipment you had. You just had to like get started. And yeah. eventually as with all things, it's going to evolve over time. You know, what's interesting is, is, so, so I mentioned earlier, there's not a very formalized educational pathway. That's starting to change. I mean, we've seen, and, and I professionally have seen several universities 
start to offer within either their exercise physiology program or their exercise science program a coaching discipline. And it's inter it's an intersport or interdisciplinary sport if I'm making up you know, word that's fine. Um, but it, it's, it's, I guess it's, it focuses on all sports, not just endurance sports, not just team sports, not just stick and ball sports or whatever. It focuses kind of on all sports. And it'll be interesting to see if that does evolve to more of a, more of a formalized educational pathway for endurance coaches. Because right now you can look at the endurance coaches out there. They, they either were an athlete and got into coaching that way or they just fell into it from some odd, you know, combination of circumstances. They did not deliberately go out and say, okay, I'm going to go get this piece of education here and that piece of education there. They figured that out through the course of their careers, but it did not start like that. And I'm, I'm not convinced that that's going to be the way for the, for the remainder of my coaching career. I think some of these educational pipelines are going to start to play a role in, in that development process. I think it has to flip at some point. If it doesn't, who knows where the profession is going to go and it's going to become even harder to sort of weed out good coaches and to find the right coach that works for you or to have like just a very streamlined way of, you know, saying like, yeah, this is someone you can trust. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the NGBs tried to take that role on, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands where they tried to put some really robust structure. So the NGBs being USA cycling, USA triathlon, National USA, governing bodies yeah, of different it, sorts. Yeah. yeah. In USA track and field, they try to take the burden of developing coaches, right? And they had in, incredibly elaborate structures of level one certification, level two, level three, bronze, silver, gold, whatever the nomenclature was. And eventually those kind of fell apart. You know, it's a hard, you know, it's a hard gig to get. And now there's this very fractured, you know, there's this very fractured way of, education and development that leans uh, leans a lot on private industry. So Training Peaks, right, is one of our partners. They're probably one of the leaders in this where they pump out a lot of consumer-facing content but also a lot of professional-facing content mm-hmm. for, for coaches to actually get better. So I, I don't know if our education system is going to – is eventually going to play a role in that or whether it has to, but I, I don't know. I just kind of see it changing just with the landscape that I've seen in the last few years. Well, it's at a confusing state too. Cause as you mentioned, you have that, like just speaking for running, you've got USATF certification, you've got RRCA certification. There's at least half a dozen other ones that aren't immediately coming to mind that I've seen from where the hell did that come from? And is it just looks like a money grab to me type of thing. And to someone who wants to be a coach, they don't they're like, do I just need any certification so I can put that under my bio or is this one better than that one? And it, I think it gets very confusing in, in that regard. So it'll be interesting to see if it does, you know, become a little more cohesive. Well, the, the real issue though, that I've always had behind the certifications and why I don't initially steer people towards those is it implies an end date. Mm-hmm. And as you know, cause you're a great coach. There is no end date to your professional development. It's always. And so when you say, oh, I'm, you know, here's my stamp, here's my, you know, level one certification or whatever. The you're fact, not done. Yeah, you're not done at all. Like you should just be beginning at that point. So I, I, like I said, I, I think that the, the, the industry is mature enough now to where something is going to emerge, whether it's a professional network or some sort of like educational pipeline on the front end or whatever, just because there's an, there's enough mass to support it. 
in your coaching profession, you've worked with all different types of athletes. And in recent years, you've had a lot of notable elites. You mentioned Dakota Jones earlier. You've had Dylan Bowman, who's had success, Stephanie Violette, um, Timothy Olson's part of your roster. You also coach a bunch of age group athletes who people listening to this podcast have never heard of. How does working with the elite athletes inform your approach with your age groupers and then vice versa, how your approach with age groupers informs what you do with elite athletes. Is it one in the same? Do you separate the two? Is there crossroads in there? I don't really separate the two. It's just a big circle of life. You know, I mean, I, I learn just as much from the fundamental you know, approaches are the same, even yeah. if the intent numbers or whatever are different. Yeah, exactly. And the, the only, like one of the nuances with on the elite side is just the precision has to be higher and maybe the risk tolerance is higher as well. Because the stakes are higher. Because the stakes are higher. And I mean, you look, this is always a great example, right? I mean, Hillary, who's coached by another one of our coaches, Adam, Adam St. Pierre. Pierre they're within the top three women yesterday at the TDS are within two minutes of each other through 90 kilometers of racing. Last year at the TDS, Dylan Bowman was racing with three other people on the last row, the last 5K section. They all finished within a couple of minutes of each other. I mean, the, so the difference between winning and getting second and getting third is just getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And the elite athletes, not all of them, but most of them are willing to take a certain level of risk within their training and even within their own lifestyle, right, uh, to, 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 to win a race. Most normal athletes aren't willing to go to such extremes. They're willing to make sacrifices and compromises, but they're not willing to go to, to the extreme or have such a high risk tolerance. Most of them are. But outside of that little nuance, the application is you know, is, is very, 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 very similar. Yeah. The elite athletes, they adapt more quickly into a greater extent, but the fundamental principles are all there. But I also think that from a, from your original question, from a learning perspective, it's no, it's not this group learns from that group or that group learns from the other group. It's the entire experience that you, that a coach learns from the whole spectrum of it. Um, so I, I put a lot of stock into, and I still, I have a balanced athlete roster and I will always have a balanced athlete roster because of that fact, because I learn a lot from the people that are, they're going to scrape the cutoffs at Leadville. Like I, I learn a tremendous amount from, you know, from them that I can then apply to everybody. Well, and that's a different type of precision too. If you've got to break that <laughs> yeah, 30 you're hour right. you're exactly cutoff right. and it's like to that person, exactly I right. mean, they're not making a career out of it, but it's important for yeah. them to be able to finish you're the exactly race and right. be part of the official results. You're exactly right. The precision is definitely there when they're scraping cutoffs at Leadville. <laughs> so we've talked about your employer CTS a couple of times now. It stands for Carmichael Training Systems. It has its roots in Chris Carmichael, who's notable, famous, even cycling coach, worked with Lance Armstrong for a while. I've seen in peanut galleries. And there's even been articles for publications that I've worked for that have questioned your association with them. And some people will give you a hard time for it. How do you respond to those types of criticisms? Well, I mean, once again, you got to kind of go back to the early 2000s. Cycling is a messed up sport, you know, and, and everybody in that sport has, is to blame all the way around. Some people carry a lot of the blame, some people carry a little bit of blame and some people kind of in between. Uh, I, I've always found, and I lived through 
Lance's rise and fall and now somewhat rise back again. I mean, the like the whole, you know, the, the, the whole cycle. And while you can't condone any of any of anybody's actions during that time, you just have to realize that it was an era different where, time. Different, where everybody was effed up. Everybody from the riders to the race directors to the swaneers, everybody. And um and so anyway, that that that's that's the context of it. Um and that's gone through its phase, you know, that's all in the past. And I'm I'm not gonna go back through history and speak for Lance and Chris and their, you know, their relationship and what happened and what didn't happen. They're two grown adult men and they can speak on to that on their own behalf. But what I can speak towards is every single time through that entire trajectory, the, the, the entire one from when Lance was winning to when he was getting investigated to when he was on Oprah and now, you know, when he's doing his podcast and people have, some people have, have kind of forgiven him. Between Chris and myself, he has always been the most transparent person I could possibly imagine within that. And at every step of the way, it's here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. And I've always appreciated that in this whole context. And that's rare within that whole, within the, that, that whole cycling debacle, because most of the times it's covering up, hiding behind closed doors, hiding behind the curtain and forcibly having to have things come through the light. Chris, with his with the entire company through that entire time, anytime any of that stuff came up, way, like way, way, way before the initial USADA investigation, way before this is what I know and this is what I don't know, and you got and he'd do that to the whole company. You guys are free to think of what you want of it. You can leave. You can say I'm an idiot. You can say Lance is cheating. You can say Lance is clean. Whatever. And so that 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 part of it in particular is is it's not it, that that's just what I say to people who kind of like force that criticism, which I get, right? But I always kind of just come back to the point where it's cycling, and it was the early two thousands, and it was messed up, and you're gonna find fault everywhere, everywhere, and yeah, that's that's all I, I really have well, to say about I, I that. I think on a societal level. Too, there's always this presumption of guilt by association. So sure, oh, I get that because you work for him and he did, you know, X, Y, and Z. Obviously, you must have also done X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, you wouldn't work for him. Which is, I mean, the furthest thing from the truth, yeah. right? And then, all, and then all of a sudden, it gets bestowed upon your athletes. Well, then, you know, then this athlete he coaches must be doing something wrong, and this athlete he coaches must be doing something wrong. And it's just like it's it's. I think it's such a small percentage of the population, but it ends up getting, you know, really loud. And then because it's somewhat inflammatory, you know, it gets widespread attention. Yeah. And just how I, the world I, works. I, I these get days. all the time, hey Coop, you just start your own coaching company, right? You can go do this, that, or the other. You've got the name, the right. Like, who would I be at that point? Like that would be one of the most that, that would go against a lot of my ethos of, you know, loyalty and stick to and and, you know, appreciating people's honesty and things like that. So yeah, I could go do it. But once again, going back to all this conversation that we just had before, a big part of who I am is because I was a part of this organization, I had all of these other people around me supporting me 
for me to say, ah, screw you guys, I'm going to go play in my own sandbox. That's probably one of the most childish things that I could think of doing as an, as an employee. In immature, yeah, immature thing as, as an employee. Yeah, that's what our president's doing. So <laughs> I certainly don't want to emulate that. <laughs> um, we've been going for a while here and I want to be respectful of your time. Last bit that I'd like to end on is the sport of ultra running itself. You have been involved in it for quite a while now as an athlete and as a coach. You're doing Tour de Jantz here very soon. You've raced, I mean, any major ultra that I can almost think of or at least been part of it in some capacity. How has the sport itself from a competitive standpoint changed over the past, say, 10 to 15 years? Man, where do I start with that? Um, It's just that the density of competition has just gotten so much better. And I would still say, with all due respect to the athletes that are out there, Corinne's in the room with us right now, so she she might take offense to this. But the the density of competition still needs to get a little bit better. There's still some development that that I think needs to to happen. But that just takes time. That's honestly the biggest thing. I mean, if you just look at well, the, the sport's tra- still so small it, from a it is number very, standpoint. It is a very you know you can fit the entire North American piece of ultra running inside of the Boston, the New York City, and the Chicago marathons. Just three, just three marathons. The the whole sport of ultra running in North America can fit inside of those three race fields. So that just like from a size and scope standpoint, just tells you kind of kind of where we're at. But I think you know, really in the last you know ten fifteen years or so, the bi- the biggest thing is a the, the sheer competition has just obviously gotten a lot better. But also the competition density gets better, so the races are closer, right? The races are closer. They're more exciting. There's obviously more. Um, uh, there's a lot more money in the sport. You know, you see brands coming into it, not just to because they can sell stuff that's endemic to trail running, but also there's a spirit and there's an influence that the that the sport of trail running represents that kind of transcends outside outside of the little niche. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you see, you know, some of these marquee athletes that uh, that are here in Chamonix. That's why you see them in advertising that reaches beyond, you know, Trail Runner magazine and Ultra Running magazine. Um, so that part of it certainly has uh, certainly has trans, uh, uh, certainly has changed. You see Zach Bitter's uh, hundred mile, mile record, world, world record, just had some uh, non endemic publication in the Washington Post and other big media outlets. So that that part of it has has definitely changed over the last. Uh, uh, over the last 10, 10 or 15 years as well. But I'd say basically it's got more eyeballs on it, you know, fun, fundamentally more athletes, more people watching it, more people paying attention. Well, and I think when people think of ultra running, they think of this, they think of the UTMB, the big mountains, epic adventure here. It, I mean, it's very much a professional sport and it's a big time professional sport and that's people's perception of it. But you just brought up Zach Bitter's hundred mile yeah. record. That was an old record that yeah, he broke. Right. Um, <laughs> but we don't see many of the sports top stars, or at least who we identify as the top stars, and that's not taking anything away from Zach at all, going after stuff like that. Jim Walmsley did earlier this year with the 50-mile record. Camille Heron's done it with 100-mile record in 24 hours and things like that. Do you think we'll start seeing a shift in terms of those types of ultra-running events from a competitive standpoint where maybe those will get a little denser as well from competition standpoint and we'll really start seeing 
records fall or do you think the growth is mostly going to happen with this sort of stuff the trail and mountain ultra stuff epic views and yada 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 no i think it's all over the board i mean even when you look at some of these world record attempts in in this contrived fashion right the breaking two Two, attempts was a a great blueprint for that i think you'll start to see more of that in ultra running and really that's fueled by the exposure that it generates you know when you can generate a lot of media buzz and you can control the narrative right that's really attractive to a shoe brand an athletic apparel brand and things like that and so sometimes so much more so than sponsoring athletes at races and, and having them win you know uh, so I think, like I said, I think the whole landscape is going to, you're just going to continue to see things get faster, things get more competitive, that competition just being more dense. There's more people that are kind of shuffling around the uh, uh, the ranks. You're going to see it all because there's room for more growth. Like you said, it's small, right? When it's small, there's room for more growth. So I think we're going to continue to see it, which is really cool. Yeah, I and think really, so too. And really I, cool. I hope we continue to see it because I think a lot of these incredible performances end up getting overshadowed because visually it just doesn't look as stunning as what we have behind us. Here. Right. Right. And I think one of the things that we're going to, that we're going to start to realize, or I, I guess realize to a greater depth is the context of some of these performances because it is still very small and very new. You could look at the Western States record seven years ago. It's completely different now, right? What they were doing out here around Mont Blanc seven or 10 years ago, it's completely different now. You're going to continue to see the iterations of that where it's like, well, you know, that's, that's no longer good enough, you know, to, to, to be very, to be very blunt about it. So we're going to continue to see that. It's not, I don't think we're near the performance asymptote, right? We're not even close to that with a lot of, with a lot of these things that we're talking about, whether it's 100 mile world records or Western state records or whatever, we're still going to see a lot of progress. Building off of this discussion, and this is certainly a hot button topic in trail and ultra running. Now, what can we do to get more women involved in the sport? Well, everybody has to take responsibility not just the women. The race organizers have to take responsibility. The brands have to take responsibility. The coaches have to take responsibility. Everybody has to make it a priority. And I've, I've, I think you're asking me this question because I've advocated for this a lot, which is always a weird position to, to, to take as, as a man. But I, I really think that the lack of... of uh, gender diversity in our sport that exists right now is bad for the sport. Diverse and, lack of diversity in general, well, but, I would argue. Yeah, and you could you you could take you can take that as socioeconomic diversity, racial diversity. I I think I think that's all playing very very poorly right now. And the reason it's not getting much attention is because the sport is growing so much, which is great. Right. We'll take double digit growth, you know, year after year after year. If you were any, you know, business on, you know, business on Wall Street, you'd take double digit growth. So ultra running will take that. But when you do it without diversifying your audience, you are completely subject to when that growth starts to turn around. And when that growth goes from growing to flat to down, that down spirals because you don't have diversity. Take cycling, for example showed tremendous growth in the early 2000s. And they had all of the opportunity in the world, especially in North America, 
to put women at the forefront. Allison Dunlap, who lives in Colorado Springs, friend of mine, won the first mountain bike world championships in 2001, right after the Twin Towers. Wait, was it 2000? When did the Twin Towers fall? It was 2001. 2001. Right after the Twin Towers fell. Did it in dramatic fashion in Aspen, Colorado. Rode the last part of the last lap with a flat. Had an American flag on her shoulder. Fell off her bike at the finish line and was crying and all this kind of stuff. Same thing, Mari Holden, who won world championship medals, Olympic medals. Both of those two women could have been fantastic ambassadors for the sport and got more women into the sport of cycling. And the leaders of that sport utterly failed to make that a priority for the sport as a whole. And put but a spotlight they, on it. And, and put a spotlight on it and get more women into the sport. They could leverage those elite athletes. And instead what they did is they shrinked it and pinked it. All the bike manufacturers just made smaller stuff in the pink color and they called it they called it good. And because of that lack of leadership, when cycling took a nosedive from the doping stuff, from the safety stuff that exists now with all the distracted with all the distracted driving and whatnot, and a whole host of issues that cycling has had to deal with. All that does, all the lack of diversity does, is it magnifies the downturn. And now everybody's going out of business. So when you once had an extremely viable sport that everybody wanted to get into, it was the new golf for God's sake, for one point, right? All these Wall Street Journal articles saying cycling's a new golf. Now, nobody wants to do it. And a big part of that is because they didn't have a diversified user base. And when things took a downturn, everybody flees. My fear is, oh, sorry for that rant. My fear is trail running is going to be the same thing. So you just, you're, go, go, go on it. That was my next question. Yeah, my fear is trail running is going to be the same thing unless they diversify their audience. So we have to get my more, more minorities in. We have to get more people from different socioeconomic backgrounds in. And we have to get more women into the sport. Other, otherwise, and mark my word on this, trail and ultra running will, will fall the same fate as cycling did. And I don't think anybody here that's in the Chamonix Valley this weekend, all 10,000 runners and 100,000 visitors that are going to come up into the into the valley want that as an outcome. So that was going to be my last question is what is your hope for trail and ultra running? Anything you'd like to add to that or is that it? I just hope it's a cool sport and it's viable and people get out there and use it as a conduit to really challenge themselves. I mean, one of the great things, not to knock on marathoning too much, right? I know you're- We'll have this conversation offline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to knock on marathoning too much, but one of the really cool things about trail and ultra running in particular is people go so far into the unknown. And I think that as an element of humanity, like doing something where there's the legitimate chance that you're going to utterly fail and get taken off by a helicopter, right? That's going to happen tomorrow. The, the, the fact that there's a sport that people can participate in that has these neat elements to it, I think, is, I think it's good for everybody, right? It's obviously good for me because I'm you know, in the sport. I'm in it, I'm in it professionally and I'm, I earn a living doing it. But I just think it's good for society to have those things like that that can really test you. So I just hope that the sport continues to, to, to maintain its edge, attract new people, be viable, and be fun to come out and do these types of events. I think that's a great place to put a pin in it. This was super fun. Thanks for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Yeah. Thank you, Mario. Appreciate it.
All right, another episode in the books. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, or heck, even if you didn't, go to the Apple Podcasts app or whatever platform you're listening to this on and leave a rating and a review. It only takes a second. It helps new listeners to discover the show, and it lets me know what's really resonating with you. Also, a big thank you to Aftershocks for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Aftershocks is the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented, best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones sit outside your ear so you can listen to your music and hear your surroundings. To learn more and save 50 bucks on an Aftershocks endurance bundle, visit tms.aftershocks.com and use the code TMS when you check out. A big shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He takes care of all my audio needs for this show, the editing, the music, all of it. It's all John, and he's a big part of my small team here at the Morning Shakeout. Also, a couple more thank yous to some members of my team, Jeff Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also conveniently called The Morning Shakeout. You can find that at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for this one. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you've been listening to The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you.